doing a sermon series uh, entitled A Time to Grow, and we want to think about, you know, 2020 is behind us, who knows what 2021 is going to hold, but what we are responsible for is our own souls, our own spiritual growth, our own response to the external circumstances that occur around us. And uh, so we're, we're just trying to say, term one, let's, let's dig in and think about, well, what does it actually mean to grow spiritually, individually, and as a community? And we're going to look at eight areas of that. And then actually in term two, we've got a little instrument, a tool, where we will take a snapshot of our health around each of those eight areas, and then we'll do a bit of brainstorming about, okay, well, we'll do a bit of a course correction and how can we keep growing and, and growing together and learning and so on. So that's... Um, what we're going to do. Now, John 13. How many of you are familiar with this passage, the foot washing? You've, you've heard of this before. Um, it's a common story. Like, it's, a, it's quite a well-known story, but there's so much here. Uh, it's so rich with content and challenge. So I'm going to tell you where we end up, and then I'm going to work backwards to show you how we get there. Where we end up is Jesus' explicit instruction on how you can be happy. That's it. So if you want to know how to be happy or blessed or live a great life, Jesus gets in verse 17 right to the end, and he says, here is exactly what you've got to do to be happy. Okay, so uh, how many of you really want to be happy in your life day to day? Show of hands. Okay, so now the question is, Do you think Jesus knows what he's talking about when he tells us how to be happy? That's the question, right? It's a question for all of us. Who are we really going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? Whose advice are we going to follow when it comes to pursuing happiness, blessedness, and a great life? So that's where we're going to end up. How do we get there? The context of this passage, if you recall... The last couple of weeks, we've talked about the big picture of Christianity, of God's story, of how the world works. And a brief recap, God, Yahweh, the God above all gods, created a spiritual reality that was inhabited with spiritual beings, lesser gods called Elohim, who formed a divine council. This group uh, of, of spiritual beings with God were ruling reality as it was, and then Yahweh, God, said, I'm going to make a physical world, and I'm going to make a created reality, and, and I'm going to put embodied physical people on this world, and then with, and I'm going to invite them to rule the world with us. They're going to be my image bearers. We're going to rule the world as a divine council, spiritual and physical beings. And the place on this world where that's going to happen is called Eden. Eden was the place where the Elohim and Yahweh and Adam and Eve hung out together and ruled the world. However, the Elohim, the lesser gods amongst some of those, they thought, ah, we don't really want Yahweh to be the overall king. We want people to worship us. We want to be in charge. We want a bit more honor and glory. So they sidled, one of them sidled up to Eve and to Adam and said, hey, listen, you don't need to trust Yahweh. What you can do is just, you know, you can do what we've done. You can grab moral autonomy and spiritual autonomy and do life without Yahweh. So Adam and Eve went, that sounds like a great idea. And so they did that, and and then everything started to go wrong. Yahweh banished the Elohim and Adam and Eve from the garden, sent them out into the world, 
Uh, things got worse and worse and worse. And then God said to the Elohim, he, he banished them and gave them authority over all the nations of the world and said, okay, you can do your best to go and influence humanity, but there's one group of people who are going to be my special possession. And he, he called those people Israel, started with Adam, or with Abraham. And he said, Israel are going to be my people, and they are going to, they're going to love me. And through Israel, I am going to show the world, and I'm going to show all you other Elohim that human beings can actually love me and can freely choose to partner with me in running the world. Of course, we know the problem with Israel was the same problem that Adam and Eve had. They found the other Elohim of money, sex, and power, uh, the, the, the foreign gods, the gods of the other nations, far more attractive than Yahweh. So they went, oh, I don't know, Yahweh, you know, even though you save us, you bring us out of Egypt, and you, pres you, you preserve our lives through the Dead Sea and through the desert, and you give us manna and quail, and you relentlessly spare us. I think I'd rather live for myself. I think I'd rather follow these other gods. They promised me money. They promised me power. They promised me unrestrained sensuality and sexuality. They promised me control. And so Israel did that. And then eventually, Yahweh says, well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to step. I'm going to come and become embodied myself in the person of Jesus Christ. Yahweh, the God above all gods, takes on human flesh and comes into the world to take on board and defeat the other gods, the Elohim. And it's a spiritual battle right from the start that God is coming to show that a human being can choose to worship God alone. And so right from the start of Jesus' ministry, he's Yahweh wrapped up in flesh, coming to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with all the other gods, with human evil, injustice, and sin. He's done that for three years. He's consistently done what Adam and Eve failed to do, what Israel failed to do, what every other human being had failed to do. And now he's right at the end. And this passage gives us this incredible window into how Yahweh, the God above all gods, is going to defeat evil. How is the victory against the Elohim going to be carried out? That's what it tells us. And then it tells us how we can participate in that victory in a way that is going to bring us a great life and true joy. Okay, how does it happen? What is the essence of the victory that Jesus is going to have uh, over the Elohim? Well, we get the hint in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world. In John's gospel, the hour it refers to his death and a resurrection. We know that's coming. A and he says, okay, the hour has come. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This, dear friends, is the, uh, the key. That Yahweh is going to defeat the Elohim through love, through a life of love. Now the question is, uh, what does this look like? What does is, what is, uh, evil defeating love look like? And that's what we see here. Um, verse 3, uh, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So love is not weak. That's the first thing. Like, it's not a weak thing. Jesus does not enter this, this uh, scenario from a place of weakness. 
He is, after all, the God above all gods, just wrapped up in human flesh. Sure, he's limited uh, himself to this body, but he has all authority. He's the ruling, reigning king. What does he do with his power? What does he do with his power? Well, he chooses to serve his disciples. That's what he does. Love is taking one's agency, one's power, and using it to meet the needs of others. And so what Jesus does is the most menial of jobs. He washes his disciples' feet. In the, in the social hierarchy of the day, in a day before you had closed shoes and everyone just wore sandals and it was dirty and hot and dusty and you'd come into a, you'd come into a house uh, and ideally you'd have a Gentile slave who would wash your feet. It was the lowest of the low job. I mean, feet are seen as kind of, you know, even today in the Middle East, if you show someone the sole of your foot, that's an insult. It's a sign of dishonor and disrespect. If you, uh, so for, I'll give you an example of, of how dishonorable it was. I don't know if you remember, there was a, um, an Iraqi reporter who took off his shoe at a news conference and threw it at George Bush back in the 90s. And the rest of us in the, in the West were like, well, that's a weird thing to do. But, but in the Middle East, uh, your feet are a place of great dishonor. And this was a way, this was an, a, an affront and a dishonor to George Bush. So this is, this is Jesus going, I'm gonna, I've got all the power in the world, but I'm going to do the lowest of the low, the most menial of tasks. That's the first thing to do. Jesus doesn't use his power for himself. Okay. You go, oh, that's all good. But, but notice a little more. There's more here, right? And there's more here. Whose feet does he wash? See, if it had been me, I'd be like, yeah, maybe I can wash the feet of like the blokes who really get me and they're on my team. I would have gone like through the 11. But when you get to Judas, like maybe I wouldn't have done Judas's feet, right? Well, that's what Jesus does. You see, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil, the Elohim, the guy who's calling the shots amongst the other nations, the, the representative, the, the leader of the Elohim, who's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, where is the battle taking place? Well, it's taking place uh, through the interaction of human beings, embodied beings. And in this battle, the devil has come to Judas and has, has prompted him. And Jesus knows that. He knows that Judas is compromised. Now, what, what did, how did the devil tempt Judas? Well, I've said often, uh, you know, the kind of the, 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 holy, the unholy trinity of Elohim, the ways in which they find a way to tempt us and draw us from God is through money, sex, and power. Which of those did the, did the devil prompt Judas with? Or money, 30 pieces of silver. He was the treasurer. He was greedy. Probably also a bit of power. He'd get money from the authorities and he'd gain power and status and standing. 
And Satan, uh, the devil, had got in his ear and had said, hey, Judas, listen, dude. You know, Jesus isn't really who he said he was. This is going nowhere in a hurry. But if you just trust us, if you, if you just grab the money, everything's going to be great. You'll be really happy. Life is going to work really well if you just give your heart to money. Now, of course, none of us have ever had that temptation. So I'll just skip over um, the temptation to love money um, and compromise because of that. Because uh, living in this part of Sydney, we're immune from those sorts of temptations. That was a, I was supposed to get a laugh from that. It didn't really work. You're smiling under your mask. Actually, I was going to say, if, if you took it the next, the reason we're immune from that temptation is we just give into it before it actually has any force over us. So we don't resist often. But that's how Satan had got, the devil had got into Judas, right? And what does Jesus do? He, here's a guy who he knows has said, I prefer money over you. I, I value my own money and power more than your life, Jesus. And Jesus goes, well, I'm still going to wash his feet. That's love. How does, how does Yahweh defeat the Elohim who cause us to be selfish? He does it by suffering love. That's where the victory is. And, and, and then, it's, then there's, in your small groups, you can talk about this. Maybe we can talk about it after. There's a whole bit of a thing about Peter not understanding what he's saying. Peter going, um, you can't wash my feet. That's a terrible inversion of the social hierarchy. It's completely culturally unacceptable. There's no way you should do this, Jesus. Um, and, uh, and, Peter, and Jesus then says this weird thing, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then Simon Peter goes, well, if that's the deal, um, you know, give me a bath. <laughs> give me a, not my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Immerse me in your cleansing. So what Jesus is actually doing is saying, I've come to serve you. And here's the outward manifestation of the service. It's washing your feet, doing this, this awful thing. But he uses it as a deeper metaphor. This is an external act of what he really wants to, to say to them, which is this. Um, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet because their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. What sort of cleanness is he talking about? Is he really just talking about cleaning our bodies? Oh, no, no, no. There's a, what Jesus is saying is um, only, only understandable in the context of the first century where, where for a Jewish person, and even now for an Orthodox Jew, um, and, and the more Orthodox and conservative you go, the more seriously they take this, life is, is, a, is a massive exercise in trying to remain clean pure. Because only if you're clean or you're pure can you enter into the temple and worship God. And all the purity laws of the Hebrew Scriptures, which governed all of your life, were designed to try and keep you pure and in a place where you could come into God's presence. And Jesus is saying to Peter, uh, uh, you are clean. I'll make you clean. Now, that's an extraordinary statement. And he says, it's not just about your feet. It's about your whole being being transformed and being clean. Now, here's some context. There are, Jesus has a crack at the Pharisees, um, very religious people. They were good people. These were the, um, uh, you know, 
We, they, they get a bad rap, but they took the law and the purity laws very seriously. And, and Jesus has another little discussion about cleanliness with them. And he says, woe to you. You guys are in trouble, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. Why? You clean the outside of the cup and the dish. You wash your feet. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Join the dots. Jesus is saying to Simon Peter, Jesus is saying to the disciples, Jesus is saying to you today, uh, listen, um, if you come to me, I will clean you from the inside. I will make you pure and acceptable to God. No matter what you have done, no matter how you, no matter what Elohim you have gone after, no matter how you've given your heart to selfishness, to money, to sex, to power, to status, to, to love of all kinds of things that aren't God, no matter, no matter how you've let anyone down, no matter how messed up you are, I'll clean you from the inside. I'll give you a new heart. And then guess what will happen? Your outside will be clean as well. You don't have to worry about washing your feet because your heart's been cleaned. That's what he's going to do. That's, that's the incredible offer that Jesus makes. And he enacts it by, uh, by this washing of the feet and uses that as a teaching moment. And then, uh, and then he gets us to our final most profound, powerful point. And he asks them this question in verse 12. When he'd finished washing their feet and he put on his clothes, he returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I have done for you? Now, he's obviously not asking them, like, I've just washed your feet. No, 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 no. He's, he says, what I've done for you is I've shown you that the way that Yahweh is going to defeat the Elohim, all the angels and the demons who've rebelled against God, the way Yahweh is going to save you and change you is by cleansing you from the inside, doing for you what the Torah was unable to do. I'm going to clean you from the inside, and I'm going to do it by, by taking on the place of an utter servant. And he says, he actually said to Peter, you don't understand it now, you will understand it later. He's looking forward to his death. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? Um, isn't that the most important spiritual question in our lives? Like, do we actually understand? Um, It's easy to superficially go, yeah, 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 I do understand. But, but no, 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 no. <laughs> do you really get it? Y you see, if you really understand all that Jesus has done for you, that changes everything in your life, doesn't it? And if there are areas in your life where you prefer to live for yourself, where you prefer serving the Elohim, money, sex, power, status, approval, busyness, comfort, any of the other gods that claim our affection. If you live for those things, the only reason you do it is because at a, at a fundamental level, you haven't really understood what Jesus has done for you. 
because I defy anyone, and I think Jesus defies anyone, to really understand and then not just to fall down in absolute wonder and awe and obedience. You see, this is where it ends, right? He says, now that I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now he's not saying, uh, and I'm glad this is the case, because, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of washing feet. It's a little, eh. um, He's not saying what we've all got to do every time we come to church is wash each other's feet on the way in. Uh, I mean, we could do that. It'd be a little weird. He's saying, what I want you to do is to take all your power all your agency, all your capacity, and understanding what I have done for you, that I have I've emptied myself of everything for you, now what I want you to do is spend your life serving others. Use what you have, use who you are to serve others, because that is the community of love. That is how God is defeating the other Elohim. That is how God is changing the world one life at a time. As we come, are drawn into this community, cleansed from the inside, experience what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and then live as He lived, love as He loved, serve as He served. For 2,000 years, that's how us followers of Jesus have been changing the world. It's what it is about. And look, you might say, oh, that sounds awful. Um, why would I do that? It's like me when I was, you know, a 15-year-old and hearing all this stuff about what Jesus had done for me, and I thought to myself, I don't want to become a Christian because if I become a Christian, I'm going to be miserable. Have you ever thought that? Like, I'm worried about it. If I, if I commit myself to God, I'm, I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be, you know, poor and sexually frustrated and having to be a missionary in deepest, darkest Africa and, you know, hang out with awkward, awful people and, and God doesn't want me to have any fun. I mean, that's the, you know, like, and then Jesus says, no, no. And that's okay if you think that. Like, that's a very human thought, not specifically those 15-year-old boy thoughts, but, you know, whatever version it looked like looks like for you, you know. <laughs> and he says, verse 17, now that you know these things, that is, you know what I've done for you, you will be blessed, happy, if you come and think about them once a week. He says you'll be blessed if you do them. The blessing, the happiness lies in the doing, not in the thinking, which is really annoying for me because I like thinking about stuff. But Jesus says to you and to me today and to us as a church, if we want to live a great life, if you actually want to be happy, and that, by the way, is the root word behind what's translated there, blessed. Uh, the Greek, the original word is the, the Greek word makarios, and it can also be translated happy. So you want to be happy? Do what Jesus asks you to do, which is live the life of a servant, of a glad wonderfully generous human being who takes what you have 
And because of what Jesus has done for you, you give your life in service to whoever comes across your path. And that'll look different for each one of us. We've all got different gifts, different abilities, different callings, different places in life. But if you really want to be happy, live for others. If you really want to be blessed, live for others. If you really want to know the glorious freedom of self-forgetfulness, do what Jesus asks you to do. That's what we're to do as a church family. You know, like that's it. Like what is this, the key, what would be the um, performance indicators of a healthy church? Well, if we do life the way Jesus wants us to do life, we serve Monday to Saturday the way Jesus wants us to serve. And we come together on Sundays and we encourage each other, remind each other, we teach each other. This is what Jesus has done for us. We're drawn into him and we get ammunition to go out into the world and fight the fight. That is the way evil is being overturned. The Elohim are being dethroned, and God is accomplishing his great purposes to heal the world. So, I'm going to pause and uh, give you a moment to think, and then, uh, or not, um, and then we're going to take some questions, because this could raise, my, my goal with these is to raise questions, and uh, then leave opportunity for us um, in this group to have a discussion about what that might look like. So Justine's going to bring the mic around, take a moment to think. You could even talk to someone next to you and go, what about this? Do you have a question? You don't have to. And then, um, and there's no, if you have a question that you think is a stupid question, uh, please have the courage to ask it because I guarantee you someone else will be having the same thought but just not be courageous enough to ask it. So you just l lean in and ask the question. So Justine, right.